welcome to Le Bon Mot, a podcast about language learning produced by ACA, a language training school based in Quebec, Canada. This podcast is for people who are learning languages, and every episode will cover a different topic connected to language learning. Every other week, we'll bring you a mini-sode with different tips and tricks to help you on your language learning journey. Thank you for joining us today. I'm your host, Britta Potion Reader, and I've been teaching English as a second language for over 10 years, and I'm learning French and Spanish. Language is my passion. This week, I'm joined once again by my guest host and colleague, Johnson Bresnik. Johnson is the Director of Learning and Development at ACA and has worked at ACA since 2011. He has also taught ESL and had extensive experience in curriculum development. He has a background in linguistics and is researching acquisition of grammar in second language learners. In this week's mini-sode, we're going to be answering your questions about verb tenses. Let's get started. Johnson, welcome back to Les Bon Mots. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be back. I'm excited to talk to you about verb tenses because this is a critical issue for anyone learning a language. We all have to be able to place events in time and talk about when things happened or will happen. That means dealing with verb tenses. In preparation for our episode today, I collected some different learner questions. And while some of the challenges depended on which language people were learning, a lot were similar across different languages. One thing that was common for learners of many different languages was that it was really hard to choose auxiliary verbs. Johnson, can we talk a little bit about that? Yes, that's a challenging question for many language learners. What parts of the language am I supposed to use when I'm talking in this tense or when I'm talking in that tense? And should I use to be or to have? Uh, is it do? Is it did? How do I figure that out? So it can be really overwhelming when our choices are, are, um, are not necessarily clear. Mm-hmm. I know for myself, uh, when I was first learning the passé composé in French, it was challenging to remember which verbs I needed to use the auxiliary avoir with and which ones I needed to use the auxiliary verb être with. So I know that something that was helpful for me was a little memory trick. It uses a mnemonic device, Dr. Mrs. Vander Tramp. So each letter in Dr. Mrs. Vander Tramp uh, has a correlation. It's the first letter of one of the verbs that we use the auxiliary verb être with in the passé composé in French, for example. This is something that I learned when I was in French immersion in elementary school, and it's something that I still use to this day just to make sure that I'm using the right auxiliary verb. Uh, and many French speakers don't know about this trick to understand the difference between être and avoir in the passé composé. There are other ways of knowing which auxiliary verb to use in the passé composé. Um, were there any other suggestions that you had found, Britta? You know, Johnson, I think every French teacher has their little trick for helping their students remember. Yeah. For me, mm -hmm. my French teacher taught me uh, the story of somebody named Bob, la vie de Bob, so Bob's life. Bob est né, or Bob was born, all the way until um, Bob est mort, Bob died. So the whole life story of Bob taught with the different verbs 
with which we use uh, être as the auxiliary. So I've I've heard that same example. And uh, Bob goes up the mountain and comes down the mountain and goes home and returns and becomes and and it uses all the verb tenses and it creates a really nice semantic connection between um, those verbs and the auxiliary that you're supposed to use. So those those types of um, memory tricks create additional relationships between what we know and and what we're supposed to use the verb tenses for and and which auxiliary to choose. Mm-hmm. And if you're like me and learning French and struggling to remember it, I'm going to sneak in uh, to our show notes links for this tip and many others that we're going to discuss today. So don't worry, we'll have uh, have links that you'll be able to click on in our show notes. I guess, too, when it comes to auxiliary verbs, like everything, really, it's a case of practice makes perfect, isn't it? I really believe in this. Practice is so important. It's fundamental to being able to master and to perfect your language skills. I think challenging yourself as much as you can to to use the verb tenses in conversation or even if you're doing practice exercises online or some type of written exercises, challenging yourself to read them aloud, say them out loud, it helps to build those connections in our brain between the auxiliary verb that we're using, the tense that we're using, and the situations in which we're using them. So that can also be a pretty low-tech, easy way to practice. Exactly. I agree. There was another key question that came up, and this was for learners of many different languages, and that is, how do I remember all of the irregularities? This is a very interesting challenge, an interesting question. Irregularities are you know, exist in every language. And we tend to focus on them a lot. Uh, One of the things that I would recommend is to focus on the regularities, to focus on the patterns. For example, in English, when we look at the irregular verbs, we can actually group a lot of them together and we can see some regularities within them where some verbs don't change, like put or cut. Um, Some have identical present and past participle forms, Uh, like come, came, come, Mm -hmm. and some change according to their spelling, like bind, bound, or find, found, etc. And so it's, it's important to group those together, look for patterns, and not focus so much on what you can't understand, the irregularities, but try and group the regularities and find the patterns in, in those changes in the language. Similarly, in French, we can use the verb groups to sort of help us remember some of these patterns. So first, second, and third groups, um, exactly, those kind of yeah. verb designations. Can... ER, IR, and RE mm-hmm. patterns to, to know how to conjugate your verb. In general, I think the other thing that we should recommend to people, and I often talk to uh, my students about, is that when you learn a new verb, try to practice a, a little bit of the form of the verb, not only just the meaning. So try to conjugate yep. it in a couple of different tenses so that you have have at least looked at those tenses, looked at those forms, and and it's particularly for the irregularities, you kind of have a sense of what they are. It's going to help in general, along with more practice. I agree. Um, practicing the form is really important. It's, it's kind of like uh, weight training. It's Um, You're making sure that your brain is ready to produce those forms and Mm -hmm. try them in context, in different contexts with the meaning, because there's 
there's nothing worse than practicing something that you are comfortable doing in a controlled environment and then getting to a spontaneous environment and not knowing what to do, right? It, it's one of the, the challenges with language learning where, you know, we, we use exercises like multiple choice and fill in the blanks, but it's so rare that you get into the real world and you have a fill in the blank situation or you have a multiple choice situation when you're speaking a language. And so it's it's important to imitate the practice or to build the practice that you want based on the situations that you're going to encounter. Make it context appropriate, make it realistic. And that way, when you do get to those scenarios, you're ready for them. I really like uh, what you said about preparation. I think that that's so mm-hmm. key in general, not only for learning verbs, but everything in English. If you Take the time to prepare a little bit for the situation that you're going to face, review some of the vocabulary, think about some of the sentences, even mentally rehearsing those or or practicing them out loud. If you have like kind of the discrete place to do that, it really helps build our confidence when we have to get into the situation. We're not going into it cold because, as you said, when we're in a conversation with somebody in another language, they're not going to give us three options to no. choose from if we're stumbling and looking for a word, are they? Oh, exactly. So we have to be able to uh, produce something spontaneously. Um, and we're not going to get those prompts that we might have practiced a million times in our language classes. And that's kind of the old way of language learning. And so the new way of language learning is to be more spontaneous and more realistic with how we use language. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we really want to give our students the chance to to use language in a way that's replicating more natural situations exactly. rather than just doing doing a grammar exercise like I had to do in high school French class, right? Exactly, yes. And I came to Quebec and I was too scared to say anything to anybody. I could see it in my head, the sentence, but <laughs> I couldn't get it out of my mouth. So, oh, speaking of French, Something that came up, a question that was common from a lot of learners of French and Spanish was the question of the subjunctive. Oh, the subjunctive. I love this. You love it? Well, (laughs) I'm telling you, you're in the minority, Johnson. (laughs) Many people do not love the subjunctive. This came up as a major difficulty. Why do you think that is? What is it that makes the subjunctive such a challenge for people? The subjunctive is, it's a mood that is very complicated in French, in Spanish. It's something that is, um, it's a concept that uh, learners have difficulty pinpointing the exact use because they don't see when it exists, when it doesn't exist. And it's even more so complicated in English where um, it's difficult to identify because as we mentioned in the um, in the episode previous, the English language is very simple and doesn't conjugate a lot. And so one of the challenges that that poses for the subjunctive is that we don't see a conjugation when it comes to the subjunctive, as opposed mm-hmm. to French or Spanish, for example. Yeah, we definitely have to do a lot more memorizing when it comes to the subjunctive. And it looks quite different. So a structure that exists in French, like il faut que quelque chose, that doesn't really have a commonly used English equivalent. So sometimes it can just be hard to remember that I need to use it. Very true. You know, for me, as an Anglophone learning French, I would tend to default to using je dois. Je dois faire quelque chose. That's my sneaky way of getting around the subjunctive, but uh, it doesn't sound very natural. Instead of using the il faut que je fasse. Yeah. Yes, no, it, um, these, these, that's a, that's a common, um, 
a common strategy that language learners will use. It, you avoid structures that uh, can be difficult. We'll see it when we test language learners a lot, where we'll ask them questions in specific verb tenses, and they will answer in the verb tenses that they are comfortable using, rather than the ones that we are trying to uh, evoke. And so here again, we come back to the idea of practicing. So much as we discussed earlier with conjugation, we can use some practice exercises to think about the conjugations for the subjunctive in French or in Spanish. And also tying back to what we talked about earlier, thinking about the kind of situations we need to use it. So I, for me, I've started using the subjunctive when I feel my impulse to say je dois. Mm -hmm. I pause and I try to remember to substitute il faut que. And then that's sort of my entree. I haven't mastered it yet, Johnson. I'm still a work in progress when it comes to the subjunctive in French, but okay. this is my strategy for trying to trying to work it in. So think about a situation where you personally might need to use this and try to sneak it into your repertoire of speaking. So try to avoid, try to recognize your own lazy patterns like, like me and je dois and, and challenge yourself to sneak in the subjunctive instead. So does that method work for you when you're trying to become more comfortable with new structures in a second language? Personally, I'm a big fan of mental rehearsal. Okay. You know, and thinking a little bit about in what situations I could use mm -hmm. the particular structure that I'm learning. So I think about um, what kind of things I would say in English. Oh, I need to do this. I have to do this. And then I spend some time, like maybe when I'm in the shower or something like this, I have some downtime, I'm washing my hair, I can think, okay, so how would I say that in French? Like, what are some of the situations where I would express a need or something like this? So I would start with a little seed like that, and then I would just try using it in real life. Okay. I, I watch for the confused looks. I know if I'm using it correctly or not. Visual cues are very important to know if you're, you're speaking correctly. Another topic that came up as challenging for a lot of our students who are learning English is the concept of phrasal verbs. So two weeks ago, Clemence and I talked a little bit about uh, the phrasal verb take off in our mini-sode, mm -hmm. and we talked a little bit about what a phrasal verb was. Johnson, could you give us a quick refresher, and maybe then we can talk a little bit about why learning them is so difficult I remember you mentioning you encountered this difficulty in a in a new way when you learned German. Yes, so I, you know, I had never really understood in English why um, why learners had so much difficulty with phrasal verbs and why they were such a challenge until I started learning German when I realized that I understood the verb and I understood that base verb that was being used and uh, in the German sentence they would throw a preposition on the end of it. And all of a sudden, the verb changed meaning. And it, it was a confusing situation for me because I knew I understood the verb, and I knew I understood the verb alone. And when the preposition came in, it didn't make much sense. And so it completely twisted or it completely switched that meaning of the verb. That's when I realized phrasal verbs were so, so important and so challenging for second language learners. So when we're talking about phrasal verbs, we have our our base verb, uh, for example, take. And when we add prepositions to it, like take off, take up, take away. Take on. Take on. We change the meaning. It becomes a new, it becomes a verb phrase. So this, uh, the phrase, you know, is defined as really just 
more than one part, so two parts, three parts, four parts. And the head of that phrase is the verb. That's why it's a verb phrase or a phrasal verb. And so take does not mean the same as take off. I really like that that explanation, Johnson. And I think that one thing that we need to note about phrasal verbs is they're extremely common in speaking. We do sometimes use them in writing contexts as well. Mm-hmm. But in more casual conversation, these come up many, many times in English. So it can be kind of a task to memorize all of those and to deal with the different meanings, right? So you mentioned that as you change the particle or the preposition at the end of the verb, you yeah. also change the meaning. How would you suggest people learn these phrasal verbs? Uh, I think it's important to look at what base verb is being used. So when it mm-hmm. comes to take, uh, there's maybe some meaning that, that can be read or some meaning that can be deduced from the verb take. And then also look at the mm-hmm. common meanings of the prepositions, uh, take up, take away, take off, take on. So it's important to consider both of those parts when trying to find out the meaning. Mm-hmm. Another good way to look at phrasal verbs is to organize them in their literal meaning and then their idiomatic or their figurative meaning. It's, it's a helpful way to not get too overwhelmed by all of the possible significations of our phrasal verbs. Um, so we have very simple ones like turn on and turn off, which we can use for light switches mm-hmm. when we go on and off. Mm-hmm. It's the setting that we're turning it to. Mm-hmm. And that's the literal sense of the, the phrasal verb. And then we can have the figurative sense like turn on or turn off in the sense that it, it disgusts me. So, um, you know, cigarette smoking mm-hmm. is turns me off. I don't like people who smoke cigarettes. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same kind of idea. It's the figurative sense of that switch being turned to off. So we can definitely group them by by particle, so by preposition. As you mentioned, off has the sort of the meaning that can be negative or a meaning that can be like closing or ending something. In the same way, many phrasal verbs without refer to leaving or ending, right? If we look at a phrasal verb like get out. So sometimes if we we think about all of the the phrasal verbs that Mm -hmm. use the same preposition, we may see some commonalities there. Exactly. You have examples like back out, uh, take mm-hmm. out, which is a common mm-hmm. one used in, in food and in mm-hmm. restaurants, mm-hmm. Um, and get out, back out, take out, mm-hmm. move out. Another strategy we could use would be uh, grouping them by function. So the kind of phrasal verbs that we use in a particular situation, whether that's um, at work, in a meeting, or whether that's uh, on a date or talking to friends about a specific subject, we can mm-hmm. kind of learn the phrasal verbs by the situation. It's a great way to approach learning the phrasal verbs because it it not only helps you to have a context for the verb, but it, it also shows you when it's appropriate or not. And like you said, some mm-hmm. phrasal verbs are used more in spoken English as opposed to written English. Some phrasal verbs are used more in colloquial contexts and in formal context, they may be less appropriate. I think last week we talked a little bit about being language detectives when we're listening to something in the language we're learning or when we were watching a TV show or a movie in the language we're learning. Yes. 
if you start paying attention for phrasal verbs when you're watching a TV show or a movie, any kind of contemporary media, you're going to find them everywhere, aren't you? Yes, they are sprinkled in every part of the language. It's time for us to take a look at our vocabulary of the week. And this week, we're going to be talking about location, a false friend that we use a lot in different business contexts. So, of course, it would be location in French and location in English. Johnson, could you tell us a little bit about what this word means in French? Sure. So in French, this is a common word for rental uh, or for renting. You know, you'll use it when you are renting an apartment, when you're renting a car. It's a location. So like a, une voiture de location would be a rental car. But in English, location means a physical place. So not the idea of renting. Mm-hmm. So although the words look identical, we really have a different meaning in English where uh, I might say, for example, what is the location of your new store, right? It means where is your new store? What place is your new store located? Exactly. Right? So I can also use it as a verb. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we also see this in advertising. So a commercial or a published ad might say, we have three locations to serve you. So three places that you can visit, three stores, for example. Exactly, yeah. Um, This is a common, a very difficult or a challenging uh, false friend between French and English. Mm -hmm. I know, they've got the name false friends for a good reason. (laughs) That they have. Johnson, thank you so much for joining me again this week. It's been really lovely to have you on the show. Well, thank you very much for having me, and I look forward to being back. That brings us to the end of this week's minisode of Les Bons Mots. This week on our website, lesbonmots.ca, you can watch Lauren's video about countable and uncountable nouns. We have a lot of great written content as well about news, language, learning, and culture. Do you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes? We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at lesateliers.ca. And you can also email us your questions at lesbonmots at lesateliers.ca. Reach out to us if you're interested in learning more about our language training programs or if you want to talk about ways you can improve your skills. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts to help other language learners find us. Thanks again, and happy practicing.